2 Samuel chapter 11. We're going to launch back into Samuel uh, on Sunday mornings. And I'm going to read kind of a long passage to you guys because it deserves to be taken in one shot. And it's a familiar story. It is a, the famous story of David's um, taking his blessings and flushing them down the toilet. That's what we're going to talk about today. That's a metaphor, not really. Okay. Let me read this to you. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to use your imagination. As, you're, as we're reading it, I want you to picture it. I want you to... Um, I want you to feel how grievous this, his sins are and this fall from, from grace really is. So let's, let's go through it and then we'll pray and we'll, we'll talk about it. This is 2 Samuel chapter 11 and I'm going to read through chapter 12 verse 15. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. And it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had purified herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So, and notice the little emotion in this account. Have you noticed that? It sounded like this happened, this happened, this, dot, 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 dot. There's a reason for that. So, David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was and how all the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house. And there followed him a present from the king. Um, probably an envoy of, of the king's people that are there to bless his house with a gift from the king. Really just to watch and make sure he goes there. Um, but Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go to his house. When they told David... Uriah did not go down to his house. David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, Well, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, that's tents. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house? to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Ugh. And David said to Uriah, okay, well, remain here today also and tomorrow, and then I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem 
that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate and drank in his presence, so that he made him very drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go into his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And in the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him so that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew where, the, where valiant men were. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died, and then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger arises, and if he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jeribosheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall, and he died there at, at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? If he says that, you shall say to him, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. And the messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall so that some of the king's servants are dead and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Now that David's personal matters are taken care of, he, he goes back to thinking of war. David said to the messengers, Thus shall you say to Joab, Don't let, your, don't let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. That's a way of saying war is brutal, people die. <laughs> it's very, very... Um, Heartless, strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. God gets the last word in the chapter, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Nowhere in that chapter is Yahweh mentioned except right there. Verse uh, chapter 12, and the Lord sent Nathan to David and he came to him and he said, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and he brought it up and it grew up with him and with his children it used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. So he took the poor man's lamb and slaughtered it and prepared for the man who had come to him. Ooh, then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. 
and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are the man. And then in prophetic algorithm and, and pattern, he says, thus saith the Lord. That, is a, that's, that means I'm about to say something from God. The God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would have added much more. Why have you despised the Lord, the word of the Lord, to do what's evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed, uh, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, because I will rise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did this secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. Now David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord, has, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned Yahweh, the child who was born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. Okay, heavy passage before us. Let's pray and, and we'll move quickly through it. Lord, I pray that you would guide us through this, that you would reveal to us what you want us to know about you in this passage and about what ails us. Lord, would you um, open our hearts to be receptive, to hear what you have to say, to learn and to grow closer to you through this passage. Use me, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're back in Samuel and just in time for David's sin. <laughs> Up to this point, um, we, when we left off before Easter, David was at the high point of his life and his reign. Um, Saul, the monarch before him that was jealous of him, that was trying to hunt him down, Saul had now died by the hands of the Philistines. David had become king. He'd unified the kingdom. He'd expanded his territory. He was having victory over all of these arch enemies of Israel, in particular the Philistines. He had established Jerusalem as the capital city. Significantly, he brought the Ark, which is the, the Ark of the Covenant, which is the manifest presence of God back into the national, in the center of the national life of, of the people of Israel. God, symbolically and maybe even in a real sense, God's presence is with the people of God again. Things could not be going much better. He still has some things to fight. He still has some people to fight. And in the middle of this, where we pick this up, he's off fighting the Ammonites who foolishly started a war against David. If you read chapter 10, just some real 
um, political foolishness. They started a war with David when he was trying to be kind with them. And in the process, he ended up conquering the Syrians. And now he's trying to finish off the Ammonites. But because it's all but done, it's a, such a confident battle. He sends Joab, his commander-in-chief, out ahead of him. And he stays there in Jerusalem. But then in the midst of all this blessing, David does the unthinkable. He sabotages things. This is really a story of, of self-sabotage. This is a heartbreaking, extremely difficult story. But through it, we learn some really essential things about the human heart, about sin, and about the power and the nature of God. So I'm gonna, we're going to learn about two things. I'm just going to highlight two things. One, I want to highlight for you guys in this passage, and I want you to do it with me, the incredible power and nature of sin. We've, we can't miss this. What this passage has to tell us about sin is really what the Bible tells us throughout about sin, and we dare not miss it. And it's easy to miss it in our culture where, it's, where we have a different view of sin here in our culture. Secondly, we're going to learn about the incredible power of God, but yet not the way we would think when it comes to power. When you think of the, the omnipotence of God, the all-powerfulness of God, um, it's not necessarily what you might think, although it is there. So, first, let me just go through the text with you and let's see, I, I want to see what your imaginations were doing. Let's see if we can grab just how severe David's sin is. Let me just read a little portion. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch that he was walking, uh, the Hebrew word for walking um, has the implication of just aimlessly walking, kind of just walking to and fro. He's not walking with a purpose. He's kind of, kind of bored, doesn't really know exactly what to do. He was walking on the roof of the king's house, and he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he, and he lay with her, now she had been purified from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house and the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Okay, he finds out that she is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Do you guys know who Uriah is? This, this uh, well, let me say this. This would not have been um, a random soldier. David knew Uriah personally. Did you know that? When David was on the run from Saul, and he was in the wilderness, a, a group of voluntary renegade soldiers called the Mighty Men, David's Mighty Men, they all rallied to David in the wilderness to defend him and to protect him and to save his life, and Uriah was one of them. In other words, you need to understand, not only does David know Uriah, David owes Uriah his own life. He's indebted to Uriah. This isn't just one of soldiers. This is, this is one of his mighty, mighty men that he's leaned on that's given everything for David and for David's life personally. So that's one thing. But apparently, David is undeterred by this information. He just goes right after it. He, he, he gets this information, they find out who it is, and he just immediately sends for her and still continues to pursue her. So it's one thing if he's on the roof and he sees this beautiful woman bathing 
somewhere bathing and he's tempted, but you know, oops, you turn away, right? But that's not what happened. He sees her and it's, he starts to pursue and inquire after her to find out more information. But his inquiry was in a pursuit that he could have what was not his. And he finds out that this is the wife of Uriah and he sees and he still, he takes. In order, um, he uses his power to send for her and ultimately to sleep with her. So he knows better. He knows this is not um, one thing led to another type of a thing. This is him going after what he knew was not his, regardless of the consequences, regardless of the recklessness, regardless of what it would, of what it would cost. He goes, regardless of all of his blessings, which we'll get into in a minute, he goes after her and takes what, is not, what does not belong to him. And of course, Sin begets sin. He's now God has to cover it up. David um, calls for Uriah. He pretentiously asks how the war is going, hoping that he sends him to his house, hoping that he would sleep with his wife and he would assume the child was his. This is what's going on here. But this guy's got, Uriah's got so much character. He has so much integrity. He thinks, I'm not going to go in and, make, and sleep with my wife and have good food and have a roof over my house when my fellow soldiers, I mean, this is just the, the guy, who he is, his character. My fellow soldiers are out there sleeping on the dirt. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to have solidarity with my, with my colleagues out there fighting this war. So David tries another thing. He tries to get him drunk, hoping that he, his inhibitions will be taken out and lowered. And still... Uriah, even, I mean, one commentator said Uriah is more, has more integrity drunk than David has sober at this point. <laughs> so David, apparently feeling like he has no other recourse, writes a letter, and this is what's, he uses, he uses Uriah's own integrity and own character to kill him. He sends his death note by Uriah's own hand, knowing that Uriah won't read it, knowing that he's that honest that he won't read it. And he sends him, and Joab, and not only that, remember, think, he doesn't just murder Uriah, Joab has to send many men with Uriah, who also, end, some of them end up dying. So David kills, men, kills other peop, innocent people in order to kill this one innocent person. You, I, the point is, you guys, this is like, this is, this, these series of events, David is breaking at least of the, five of the Ten Commandments. This is a heinous, heinous crime. This is as, just about as bad as it gets. It's intentional. Um, it's premeditated. It's thought through. It is a scandal. You know, if this was happening to one of our leaders today, it would be front page news. There would be picketing and riots. It would, cause, it would cause social unrest. That's what's going on. Um, okay. We need, to, we need to pay attention to, some of the, to what the Bible has to say about sin. The first thing that I want you to pay attention to is probably the outrage that's in your own heart when you read this. When you read this, there's this sense of no, David, don't do it. Let me ask you this. 
if this were another king, if this were an evil king, a wicked king, let's say this was Saul, his story, would, it, would we process this information exactly the same way? Mm-mm. No. We, we, it would still be wicked, it would still be sin, it would still be bad, but it would be what we expect from a guy like Saul, right? It'd be what we expect from, um, from an evil king like Ahab or someone that's super wicked. We would go, yeah, that's bad, but you know, it's him. But the reason this has such an impact on us is because it's David, <laughs> right? He's the one that we're rooting for. He's the anointed one. He's the man after God's own heart. This is the same guy that wrote things like, um, one thing I desire of the Lord, one thing I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever, all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. This, David wrote that. Psalm 27, I think. Psalm 40 says, he wrote, I delight to do your will, O God. And he meant it. I think he was genuine. That's what bugs us so much about this. And, and this is what the Bible is teaching us about sin. That's very uncomfortable for us. The Bible says, through, says that uh, throughout, that within every human heart, even those that have been converted to God, within every human heart, there is a capability for this. That is what's so uncomfortable about this passage, right? Right away. There is the desire and capacity to commit the most heinous atrocities and injustices that you can imagine right within yourself. Let me let me bring it, let me just get, let me just bring it right to you. Are you a Christian? Do you love God? Do you try to follow Him? Do you have a level of love for Him? You are capable of this also. That's the sobering reality. Jesus taught this same thing. Jesus taught this on the Sermon on the Mount. Let me give you a few excerpts of the Sermon on the Mount. He said, you have heard it was said of the, uh, from those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable of judgment. And everyone would say, well, yeah, okay, got it. Don't murder. I'll put that, I'll try not to do that this week. Got it. But Jesus isn't done. He says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother, just angry, will be liable for judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says raka or you fool, you idiot. That's really, it was a pejorative term in, in, uh, in those days. You, you dummy. They'll be liable to hellfire. That's what Jesus was saying. I mean, it'd be laughable if, if I said to you, yeah, yeah, you'll go to hell if you just call somebody an idiot. You'd go, but yet that's what Jesus is saying. What, what, what is he, what's he getting at? He's saying there's a space, murder comes from a space in your heart that we've all been to. Well, let me, let me, he, let me relate it to David's issue. He goes on, he says, you've heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus is saying that we all have these potentials. We all have these seeds. We all have the same ingredients that in us that David had. Maybe you haven't murdered anybody, 
but it doesn't mean you don't lack the potential. In fact, the word anger there, uh, the word for angry, um, it's the Greek word oriso, and it's, it's in the present participle in the Greek, which means a better trans or a literal translation would be, but those of you who are being angry. Uh, uh, American language would be nursing a grudge, resentful. There's actually another word for anger in Greek, uh, and it means a flare-up. You know, when you stub your toe or, or something, and you go, ah, and it, you flare, and then it's gone. This is talking about a grudge that you're nursing, something that continues. Jesus is saying that that is the seed, the potential, the same, the same um, em- emphasis as murder. The same goes with, likewise, adultery comes from the seed of lust. These are seeds in the heart Um, let me speak seed language, that have entire trees inside of them. You you look at a seed, there's a whole tree in there. It's got that potential. and, And if they are just, in other words, if they're just properly watered, fertilized, or put in the proper soil, if they're encouraged, you and I will find ourselves doing things that we never imagined that we could do. That's the reality of sin, even within us. So that means when our culture, which has become extremely moral and extremely um, justice-oriented as as a culture, um, very self-righteous, when our culture is outraged at another, at, at like a public figure when they fall, when they have a moral failure, or especially like a Christian public figure when they have a moral figure, or when they have a moral failure, I say, we, I say okay, we, we should be grieved, but we cannot be shocked. It's, it's not, it shouldn't surprise you. It doesn't excuse them, but it matches up with the entire Bible. I think about this whole entire pattern. Abraham, you know, the father of the great monotheistic, monotheistic religions. Uh, I think... Over half the world's population consider him their, one of, the, one of their, their uh, you know, they're following him. Remember, you know, passages that are not talked about very much, but remember, he's going to Egypt and he tells his wife, say that you're my sister because you're beautiful and they're going to want to take you and if they take you, they'll kill me to get you. So tell them that you're my sister. This happened more than once. Tell them that you're my sister so that you'll be, you, you can go to their harem and they can take advantage of you, but at least I'll be safe. In other words, I don't care what happens to you as long as I'm preserved and I'm safe. This is Abraham, the father of faith. Think of Jacob, another one of the greats, who manipulated, and, uh, manipulated his brother Esau out of a birthright, lied to his father Isaac, Slept with four different women to get the 12 sons that became the 12 tribes of Israel. Think of one of his sons, Judah. You remember in Genesis 38, Noble and I read through the Bible every morning, and we got to Genesis 38, and I was like, let's keep reading about Joseph. Let's skip that one, because I'm thinking, how do I explain all of this stuff to him that's just evil? It's It's a crazy account of Judah in the Bible. I don't even want to say it right now. You can read it yourself. You can go there and read it yourself. Um, think of Moses. Moses who 
murdered someone and at the end had, had failed in his leadership to the point where God wouldn't let him enter the promised land. Think of Noah. After the ark, after God had done so many incredible things and saved his family on the ark, Noah was doing something sexually inappropriate in his tent. There's all, I mean, it's, the Bible throughout is very honest about the people that God chooses to use. Very honest. This by no means excuses sinful, destructive behavior, but when we're shocked, when we're shocked at it, or we're shocked when a public figure fails, it shows that we've forgotten the Bible's doctrine of sin. We've forgotten how important this doctrine is. It is pervasive, and it's in all of us, and yes, Christians have the Spirit of God in us that's raised Jesus from the dead, that's ruling and reigning inside of us, but if we've forgotten that and we don't participate and obey that spirit within us, we have, we have all the potential of doing some pretty horrible things also. Paul said the flesh will always war against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. There's a war going on inside of us. My friend who's uh, in Southern California, he's a rap artist, he wrote this poem, really a rap song about sin. Um, he says, it's not like it lets up on the day you get saved. The flesh or the spirit, who you want to entertain. I was buried with the Christ, that old man is in the grave. I'm alive to the spiritual side. New eyes open wide with the spirit to God. Transformed and revived, now a branch in the vine. To survive, I only have to abide. But I'm far from perfect, a work in progress. In fact, I'm certain, parts of me, a worthless object. I struggle and I still fall often. Who you want to entertain? There's a, you know, there, you know I was re as I was reading this, one commentator said, um, it was just a catchy line, it said, be killing sin or sin be killing you. Be killing sin or sin be killing you. And we'll get back to that when we get to the practical side. Here is David. He is king. Now, um, let's look at the pattern of sin that the Bible presents for us. Sin is a way of, uh, first of all, I want you to see that sin has a way of blinding us to reality. Did you, did you notice that here? David is somehow not content with all of his blessings. He wants more. He's got to have what he doesn't have. He's not content. I mean, he's, and he is so blessed, so privileged. If you read, this is what God says. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Look, I anointed you king over Israel, my treasured people. And I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms. Let me pause and say, this is not an advertisement for polygamy. This is power language. Uh, this is political power. In other words, in the ancient Near East, the more wives you had with political alliances, it showed how much power and how much prosperity you have. In fact, the Bible is um, vehemently against polygamy all throughout. So this is, not a, this is not God endorsing polygamy. This is just him saying, I gave you power. I gave you territory. I gave you influence. I kept expanding your influence. And as if that were too little, I would add to you so much more. In other words, I just had a heart to give. 
I had a heart to bless. Now, in some ways, this is this sinful pattern is so, that nailed David, this trap set for David, is so classic. In the Genesis account, Adam and Eve were in perfect fellowship and communion with God and each other. They were walking around with God in the cool of the day. They had so much variety of what they had, but they still thought they needed something else. They thought God was holding wisdom back from them. Remember Satan or that snake planted that lie. God you won't die when you eat that. Of the, one, the one thing that God told you not to have. I've given you all these things, but one thing you cannot have. The reason he's doing that is because he doesn't want you to be wise. Hey, the whole Bible is about God shaping us as wise people. Did you know that? The whole Bible is wisdom literature trying to shape our character as humans into wise people. God is not trying to hold back wisdom. What they... What the lie was, God's holding back. He's not going to provide for me, so I'm going to take it into my own hands. And this is the same pattern. She, she sees and she takes. Look, Genesis 3, 6 says, So when the woman saw that, when she saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was uh, desirous to make one wise, she took. This is the sin pattern over and over again in the Bible. To see and take. See, and let me read another one. Genesis chapter 6. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, were beautiful, and they took them. Uh, Genesis chapter 12. We just talked about this. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman, that's Sarah, was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's harem. Lot saw the valley of Sodom and Gomorrah, and he decided to have it for his, for his own self. The seeing and taking is this sin pattern, but what's behind it is that God is not going to supply for my needs. I need something. God's not going to meet that need. So I've got, I see it and I'm going to take it myself. It's humanistic in every way. And here we are with David. He's in the midst of his blessings. He's blind to all the blessings. God's heart is just to give, 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 give. But he sees something that he cannot have. And he says, and he sees Bathsheba. He sends for her and he takes her as his own. There's also examples of people who have passed this test. Remember Joseph in Potiphar's, uh, his master Potiphar's house. He was a slave. And Potiphar's wife said, lie with me. She's beautiful. Have sex with me. And he said, hey, your master has given me all, everything. I'm basically free. He's, he's not kept anything. He can trust me completely except for you. You're the one thing I cannot have why would I mess all this up? Like Joseph saw it. He was able to keep his right mind. Look at all these blessings. David could not. But here's the real clue that's, that's behind all of this sin. Look how God looks at it in verse 9 of chapter 12. He says, why have you despised the word of the Lord? To do what is evil in his sight. To God, it's a dis sin 
is us despising his word. Look at verse 14. He uses another word. He says, by this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. So sin, to, in God's view, from a heavenly perspective, or getting behind it all, sin is, number one, a despising, and it leads to scorning. So tellingly, the word despise is the word baza in Hebrew. And it isn't an emotional word like it is for us. If I despise you, it kind of reminds you of disgust. Like I'm grossed out by you. I despise you. That's not how the Hebrew person looked at it. In the Hebrew, it's a word of priority. It means to undervalue something that should be valued. That's what it means. Or it means to value something above what it should be valued. It's a, it's a word of priority. So in other words, David prioritized a narrative, I need her, over an, another narrative, God's word, and to God, that's despising his word. It's all about faith. It's all about belief. At the heart of every sin that we partake in, it's because there's something in us. Every, think of any sin that you struggle with. Think of any of it. A lie Think of small ones, think of big ones. Behind it, there is a God's not enough for me. I've got to do this myself. I'm going to believe a narrative. I'm going to take matters into my own hands. I don't trust that God knows what I need. Or if he does, he's not showing up to give it to me the way I need it. I'll trust my own instincts, my own appraisal of the situation. And I'm going to see and take. That's why faith is so important. The Bible says that faith comes by hearing. Hearing what? The word of God. What is the word of God? It's the, it is the story that God tells by which we interpret reality. This is why we meet corporately. Because at our church, and this is why we study the Bible and not do topical sermons necessarily, even though those are fine every once in a while. But for the most part, our main diet as a church is expository preaching. In other words, we're in, not my iPad, but the Word of God that is on my iPad. We're in the Word of God. Why? Because I am try we, we are to be a community that is shaped by God's narrative of how, what, what is real. Uh, the New Testament word for this is discipleship. You, okay, let me put it this way. You are being discipled by something. You are being discipled by stories, images. Jesus understood that stories shape your imagination. The way to the heart is through the imagination. Jesus understood that. That's why he told parables. Stories that came alongside to interpret reality. Para, come alongside. A story that came alongside and added to reality that showed you God's reality. And it would challenge the culture stories, but it would, but it would fulfill the need behind it. So a great, a, a, great, um, a great kind of formula or algorithm that the Bible will do for you, if you are trained enough, to, if you are in it enough, you will come across other narratives, other images, other pictures, other stories out in culture all the time. And you will notice that the Bible will confront that story by saying, yes, but no, but yes. Okay? 
In other words, the Bible will say, if, if, your, if our culture is saying to be fulfilled and to flourish as a human being, you need to be well. You need to be fit. You need to be in shape. You need to be healthy. The Bible will say, yes. But then the Bible will say, but not like that. But no. You won't do it by being physically fit because you, you can be physically fit and be a miserable person right you won't do it by uh you know trying to uh, trying to out uh, outrun your mortality by extending your life or biohacking or whatever it is that's going on today you're not going to do it that way so yes it's a valid need biohacking are you wondering what that is no, I you know what it is okay i thought you looked at each other like what you're you're married to biohacking wow um, she's like, no, you're not. Biohacking is when they can hack your biology to try to make you cheat death. There's people that say that that's what we're heading for. Okay? The Bible would say, okay, yeah, death is a problem, yes. But no, not like that. But through Jesus, yes. Yes. And that, so what we're doing, what the Bible is doing is it is, it's a, it's a war of narratives and you get to choose what you believe and your faith comes by hearing the word of God. In other words, we are to be a people that are so shaped by God's narrative that we can be, we can both, conf, we can both affirm, confront, and fulfill the people, what the culture around us is, is needing and, and wanting. The word for wellness, in, by the way, in the Old Testament is the word shalom. It means wholeness, health, peace. Uh, it, it's not the absence of something like disease or death, but it's the gaining of something, of, with, uh, which is fellowship with God. That's why the writer of uh, the song, It Is Well With My Soul, was able to say, I have shalom, even as his whole family died he was able to write that song, It Is Well With My Soul. There's a wellness and a peace that can be there even in the midst of tragedy, even in the midst of health failure, even in the midst of all sorts of atrocity. We can have that. That's, so you see the Bible saying, yes, but no, but yes, it's even better than that. That's why we're here. Every sin and every proclivity that you have starts with, did God really say I need more. It's a battle of the narratives. And that leads to our second word in verse 14. So we, first we despise or we take out of priority the word of God. Another narrative supplants God's narrative. That's first. And then in verse 14 he says, By this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord. Now that's an emotional word. Um, it's the word naas in Hebrew. And it means that we've utterly scorned authority, that we have disdain for, for authority figures. In other words, we come to um, distrust God. We're suspicious of him. We don't think he's right anymore. Or we do that with our other authority figures. See, it starts with believing a narrative that rearranges our, our priorities. That's number one. That's where sin starts. God's word is no longer the most important or plausible reality to us, and that leads, that leads us to disdaining authority. So we see, and then we take. 
It's an inside-out type of thing. Okay, the power of sin, it's a thing. It's in you, it's in me. But let's learn about the power of God. Look at God's response. I want to focus very briefly on two things here. One is Nathan's confrontation. Did you notice that? It's really interesting. Nathan's confrontation. God sends a prophet to confront David. But here's what does not happen, interestingly enough. Nathan does not come in and say, I know what you did. You're an adulterer and you're a murderer. He doesn't do that. Instead, he tells this story. He draws David in with his imagination. He arouses David's sense of justice. And I want to tell you this because I think this tells us the heart of God. I think this shows us the heart of God in a very powerful way. If Nathan, well, let me ask you, if Nathan would have come in the first scenario, breaking down the door and said, I know what you did. I got you. How do you think, what do you think David's response would have been? Kill Nathan? Kill Nathan? Yeah, right. David, notice the first chapter, chapter 11, there's no emotional responses. It's almost as dead as David's heart. This, it's almost mechanical. I see it, it's a, I, see it I want it take it so I'm going to take it and then this happens I'm going to kill this person blah 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 it's just like it's like David's it's like David's lost his humanity and Nathan comes in and if, if David was in that state of mind and Nathan would have come straight at him like that Nathan would have ended up dead but I don't think Nathan's afraid because later he does get straight at straight at him I think Nathan wants David to repent and I think God wants David to repent and I think that's why he came at it this way. He tells this story, um, this elaborate story about two guys. And by the way, this will not make sense to you, really, or fully, unless you remember that back in David's day, there was no separation of powers. In other words, David, today we have a king, and then we've got the Supreme Court, and then we've got the legislators, right? We have a separation of powers for accountability. In the ancient world, there was no separation of power. David was the end-all, be-all. He was everything. He was the king, and he was the judge. And one of the things that, ju- that kings would do, they would sit on their thrones, and it was their job. People from all over the realm would come to them with disputes, and they would deliberate justice. They would say, okay, let's do it like this. Or actually give half of it to him and half of it to her. And, and, he would, they would, and that was the final word. That's the context here. Nathan is coming to David as a judge. And he's saying, look, I need you to give out justice on this story that I have. There's this guy, rich guy. He's got tons of flocks and herds. He's lacking nothing. And there's also this poor man. All he's got is this little lamb. Saved up all he had, bought this lamb. This lamb is like, it's like a kid to him. I mean, it's, it's, there's this emotional connection. Eats off his plate, drinks from his cup. Little weird, but still, it's his heart. And a guest came to the rich man. And back in the ancient Near East, hospitality was everything. Hospitality was everything. This uh, guest came to the rich man and he didn't want to kill any of his own flocks. He's got so much abundance, so much blessing. Instead, he steals from the poor man, slaughters his, the, the little lamb, and feeds it to his friend. Now, did you notice David's reaction here? David's, I mean, it's like justice, this 
this justice for righteousness just flares up. On the one hand, he, he, he deliberates rightly. He, does, he speaks the Mosaic Code. He says, I tell you the truth, he'll pay it back fourfold. That is actually in the Mosaic Code. If, if you hurt somebody else's stuff, if you um, hurt uh, uh, somebody else's flock, you were to pay them back fourfold. That's from, straight from Moses. But the other thing he says is excessive. He says, he deserves to die. Actually, he says, he makes an oath. As the Lord lives, this guy is going to die. There's nowhere in Moses that says that this is a capital offense. Um, this Hebrew scholar that I stumbled across, and I can't remember his name, Alter or Alfer, I can't remember, it doesn't matter. He was saying how the Hebrew alludes to David's heart being so guilt-ridden that he's, he's, he said that this is compensatory. In other words, David is lashing out injustice because he's compensating for his own sense of injustice within himself. Have you noticed that, that you do that? I do that. I totally do that. Or I'll come down hard on something because in there I feel like it makes me feel better that I have not done that myself. I can see somebody else's problems so clearly and I know what to do because it makes me feel better because I have not done those things. It's interesting with the, the human heart, what it's meant to do. And, you know, like a judo expert, Nathan uses this momentum and flips it around. It's almost like David is saying, whose kingdom does this guy think he's in? There will be, does this man think there's no justice in my kingdom? Who does this man think he is? And Nathan says, you're the man. A grappling move. All of a sudden, David, who's on the judgment seat, is flipped, and he's the one being accused. And then Nathan takes the posture of a prophet. You can read this pattern throughout. Prophets will say, thus saith the Lord, and then at the end they say, therefore. That's exactly the same thing. Thus says the Lord, I anointed you king. I saved you from Saul. I gave you territory. I made a covenant with you. I love you. And if that weren't enough, David, I would have given you, I would have given you more. If that weren't enough, David, I would have given you more. Why have you despised me? Therefore, because you did this in private, I will do, it will come back on you in public. The sword will not depart your, from your house. This will be your undoing. This will follow you to your grave. And you guys, I'm sorry to say from this point out, David's life ends miserably. What? David's life ends miserably. Okay. But I think God's heart here is for David's repentance. I think he's not trying to just confront him and discard him. He's hoping that David will do what David does. Look at verse 13, and here we see the, the uncanny power of God. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, just like that, I've sinned against the Lord. Just, in Hebrew, it's a two-word confession. Two words. I've sinned against the Lord. That's all it took. And right away, 
Nathan says to David, the Lord also has put away for your sin and you shall not die. In other words, you're forgiven. Now here's, now anyone who has read the Bible up to this point and been paying attention, this is very confusing. Does God have the power to forgive sins? I know that the, you want to say yes, but does he though? Why then, why do we have, I wish I had a real Bible here. Why do we have a thick book then that's dealing with how God has to get around sin? Why, why don't we have just three pages? Adam and Eve, they eat the tree and God, why doesn't God just say, I've put away your sin. It's done. Why? Why? Okay. Yes, he died for all mankind on the cross. Because, but did he have to? Yes. Which means, if he didn't have to, sin is a problem for God. Sin is a. Let me well, let me put it this way. I've used this before, but I'll say I'll, I think it's a really helpful analogy. Um, if hold on one second, if I were to take, do you have a phone, Kristen? You don't have a phone. Do you? What's very valuable to you? What do you love? Okay, you're with your mom in the hospital. Okay, what if I were to break into your apartment and break all your stuff? Let's say I just lost my mind and I and I took a baseball bat into your apartment and I just ransacked it. And you. And, Okay, so you're, you're relating to this. Now let's say you come in and you catch me, and I go, and you call the police because I'm just going crazy. And the police come, and I go, and I come to my right senses, and I say, Kristen, I'm sorry. Gosh, I don't know what came over me. And your place is just wrecked. Your TV's broken in half, everything. And I, and I say, Kristen, I'm sorry. I don't know what came over me. And to your shock, the police officer says, he seems sorry. You should just forgive him. What would it take for you to forgive me? You would have to pay for all that stuff yourself. Here's what I'm telling you. Forgiveness is a problem. There is no such thing as forgiveness that does not cost something. It does not exist. You can use this economically, Emotionally, it's like if someone abuses you, if someone hurts you, in order to forgive them, you've got to let them off the hook and incur that cost on your own. You cannot get that back. Someone's got to pay for it. And I'm telling you, theologically, biblically, it's a problem for God too. Someone's got to pay for this. So when you come to him with David, and David says, well, man, I've sinned, and God just says, yeah, okay, I forgive you. It's a, if you've been paying attention up to this point, you're going, how... How can you just say something like that? And then this sin, this is as bad as it gets. We're talking about murder and adultery. And, and I mean, this is really bad. And plus, David is a king, which means it's precisely his job to protect people from these kinds of crimes. And here he is, the one doing it. How in the world can God just say, I've put away your sin and you won't die? We have what we call a conundrum here. 
a conundrum. It's a problem. I'm saying forgiveness is a problem for you. It's even more so a cosmic problem for God. God said, let there be light. Let there be the planet. Let there be creatures. Let there be this. He did not say, let there be forgiveness. That took the rest of the Bible, a story of how he ultimately, like you said, Kristen, incurred the cost himself on the cross, which is what, okay, I ran across Eugene Peterson Eugene Peterson, he came up, he mentioned something when he was writing about this story. He said this. He wrote an insight about this that just hit me. He he points out a remarkable similarity in this story of David standing before Nathan and that of Jesus standing before Pilate. Can you guys, you guys, does does this sound familiar? It didn't, I didn't get it. It took Peterson to, to, what Nathan said, you're the man. Jesus, before Pilate, he comes out after being scourged, and what does Pilate say? Behold, the man. And I went, no way. And then Eugene Peterson started to say, it's two courtroom scenes. David And, and in both courtroom scenes, the players are not where they should be. They're flip-flopped. Think, in David, David's the one that should be being accused, but he's the judge. He's in the judgment seat. He should be the one in the dock, but he's in the judgment seat. And in Jesus' story, in John chapter 19, he's the one being accused, but he should be in the judgment seat. He's the great cosmic judge. He should be the one judging. And I thought, no way. And I looked it up, and sure enough, I think, I think he's right. The courtroom of David in the courtroom of Pontius Pilate are telling a story. David, the man on the judgment seat, should be the one on trial. But in Pilate's courtroom, the man on trial, the man accused and being condemned, should be the one in the judgment seat. God sends a prophet to rectify the first situation. In comes Nathan. You're the man. And everything's flipped right. David is the one being judged, and rightfully so. But in Pilate's courtroom scene, no one comes to make it right. The judge of the earth, the son of David, allowed himself to be judged and be killed. For all of us Davids, No prophet shows up and says to Pilate and to the Pharisees, no, you're the man. It didn't happen. On the cross, nobody shows up and Jesus, the son of David, dies forsaken on the cross. The judge of all the earth who did nothing wrong died condemned. Why? So that we Davids, when we repent, we can be assured and receive forgiveness. Your sin has been put away. I think that's the only way this makes sense. I think that, that God knew, I mean, since Genesis 3.15, the very beginning, when Adam and Eve sinned, God called his shot that there would be a seed that would come and that would bruise the serpent and would make it all right again. I think that's the only way it makes sense. I think that Jesus is the sacrifice that all the Levitical sacrifices are, are pointing to. You remember when Jesus is, is, is preaching 
And all of a sudden, the roof starts to be uncovered, and they start lowering that guy. Remember that? And he's paralyzed. And obviously, they're wanting him to heal uh, the guy of being paralyzed. They're thinking, okay, he's going to make him. But Jesus does something else. Jesus exhorts his power. Why? He says, your sins are forgiven. And everyone goes, they're surprised for two reasons. One, we were hoping you would heal him. Secondly, who the heck are you to forgive sins? In fact, the Pharisees were like, whoa, only God can forgive sins. And Jesus responds, he reads their heart, and Jesus responds with a really interesting question. He says, let me ask you something. What's difficult, do you think? Saying that this guy's sins are forgiven or saying, raise up, take up your bed and walk? And he links the two together. He says, so that you know that I have authority to forgive sins, I say to you, rise, take up your bed and walk. In other words, sin has caused all disease, has caused all human atrocity, has caused all this, and I do have power and authority to forgive sins. It shocked them. How in the world is God all-powerful? Yes. But how does the Bible measure omnipotence then? By his power to become utterly weak and defenseless on the cross. That is how the Bible measures power. The only way God could exercise his power to forgive all of our sins is to not use his power and allow himself to be pinned to a cross and die for our sins. Therefore, in the Bible, we measure power by someone's ability to not use it, to give it away in favor of those who are weak. This is our story. This is why we're here. I think Jesus did all those things because he knew he was going. When he said, I'm going to the cross, it's as good as done. And I think it retroed back into history into, and, and allowed God to be able to say to David, yeah, I've forgiven you because of what I'm going to pay for you. Okay, some practical things. Number one, be killing sin or it be killing you. Be killing sin or it be killing you. Um, a seed, it's much easier to squash a seed than to fell a tree, than to take down a whole orchard. I wish someone would have told me this when I was younger. Mike, you give into that, it will grow. It'll be harder next time. Uh, Romans chapter 6 says, he says, yield your body to righteousness, not to sin, because whatever you yield your body to, that's become, you become a slave to it. Um, if I were to take Tara, and if I were to wrap one thin little um, thread around her wrist and tie her, do you think she could get out of it? Yeah, she's really strong. She could that. But what if I took that same thread and I kept repeatedly wrapping it around Tara? Over and 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 over again. Now that little thread, she is, she is bound to it. That is how sin works. The more you do it, the easier it becomes, the harder it becomes to get away with it, away from it. And it can end up defining your life. Therefore, can't, now do you have the power to get to, to even then to get out of it? Yes, of course, by the power of the Holy Spirit you do. But boy, Oh boy, it's much easier to squash a seed than to fell a whole forest, okay? That's one thing. Secondly, 
Be Nathans in each other's lives. The Bible says, when your brother or sister sins, rebuke them. The Bible also says um, to confess your sins to one another so that you can be healed. I want you and I want us to love each other so much that we are good Nathans in each other's lives. In other words, that when we see each other sin, we don't come slamming through and say, I know what you did. Gotcha. And feel so good that, yeah, I told him. No, 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 no. That's not our heart. Our heart is for repentance. So we're wise. We're gentle. We draw out the best that we believe that someone is, that's in someone. Yes, there's sin in you, but you're also made in the image of God. There is, the image of God is in you. You still bear his signature. I'm going to pull that out in you. Because I love you and I want to heal and I want, to re- I want repentance and healing and all of those things. Boy, if we can become a community of Nathans that love each other, man, I'll tell you what, you guys, there's, no, there's nothing that we can't overcome in our, in our community in our, as Christians. We'll have a powerful, powerful force. We'll be safe to be human here. But also... We'll know that people love us enough. Well, the, the balance is we love each other just as we are, right? Right? I mean, that's good. I'm not, no trick question. Yes, we love each other as we are. But we also love each other not to allow each other to stay that way. Right? I need that from you. I need to know, you love me as I am, but you also love me enough to, to say, Mike, I see better things in you. God's doing better things in you. I'm gonna draw that out in you. That is the community that we need. We need Nathans here. People who are bold enough. Not, Nathan wasn't afraid. He was bold to go into the king and say, you're the man. But the way he did it was filled with love and kindness and compassion. It was gracefully shrewd and very wise how he he knew david loves justice i'll i'll get that thing going in there some of my best friends and i dare say why i'm still standing here today are people that have pulled me aside and said mike you're better than that i love you and you're better than that let's deal with it and it hurt so good And thirdly, be assured of your forgiveness. How can you be assured that God has the power to forgive you of all your heinous crimes? How can I stand before you today as someone who's done horrible things, chronically horrible things, and yet I can be so assured of God's forgiveness and grace in my life because someone came and paid the debt. He paid the price Can you believe that? Can we believe that? And can we walk in it? Be assured that you're forgiven. There's no more need for guilt. You are forgiven. God has put away your sin. Maybe not the consequences, and we'll deal with that next week. We'll see how that worked out. But David was able to withstand those consequences because he knew he was forgiven in his soul. He was right with God. That's the key. So as we finish, we'll take communion today. And I want you to think about when we take communion, this is your assurance that you are utterly clean and forgiven. 
reconciled between God 